Welcome back to another exciting episode of Angel Insights, the show that delves deep into the world of angel investing, learning from some of the top business angels and their underlying portfolio companies. I'm your host, Tom Britton, co-founder of Syndicate Room, creators of the Axis Venture Fund. On today's show, I'm delighted to welcome longtime friend, Shreen Matapali, who started off studying genetics before switching to law, then to business, getting his MBA at Oxford, before turning his hand to coding and starting his own company, which he ultimately sold to Airbnb. Shreen spent a few years at Airbnb before heading back to these shores where he's now an angel investor, a mentor, and a good friend amongst other things. We're gonna dive into the lessons that he learned through all those different experiences and talk about how he approaches angel investing given those experiences. I've wanted to do this episode for such a long time. Shrin, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Tom. Great to be here. You and I, for those that don't know, we go back a fair bit. We met at Tech Hub when I think you were working on a application for social networking for business purposes at events, like something to do with Bluetooth and sending someone a LinkedIn card. Do you remember that? <laughs> Vaguely, I think I've just tried to. I think I've just sort of tried to shut it out of my mind, just because it like never really went anywhere. But yes, back in very different days of tech, right? Like I think when we were doing this back in sort of 2014, 2015, and getting our respective ventures started, it was all just yeah, very different, very nascent. It sort of felt like it was the beginning of something. Who knows what that something could have been, but <laughs> it's the start of something. So we were working on a a project. I wouldn't even call it a startup. It was I think a pre-startup idea exploring, you know, could we find a way of replacing the business card? And in a way, I think maybe we were like six, seven years too early. <laughs> we needed a pandemic. <laughs> no, definitely. And I mean, to be honest, someone handed me a business card the other day and I looked at it and I was just like, do I grab it? <laughs> do, I, do I sanitize my hands first? Yeah, exactly. I remember something quite interesting about your background because you have a very unique background <laughs> in terms of making your way into tech. So you studied genetics, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. Then you went into law, then you did an MBA, and then you taught yourself how to code and kind of freelance as a developer. Let's take a second to, to walk through those steps. So first, genetics. What was your thinking on that? What did you want to initially uh, set out to be? I think maybe one of the overarching things here was that maybe there wasn't a huge amount of thought in a lot of things. But hey, I don't think that's actually always a bad thing. I think from very early on, when it came to career and choosing what they wanted to do, especially when I was much younger, I think looking back on it retrospectively, I was quite instinctive in the sense of if I found something intellectually interesting or something I found curious, I would just go and learn it and do it. So originally, like at high school, I liked sciences, I liked biology, I liked chemistry. And so the natural logic of it is like, oh, if you like these subjects, do them at university. Not really thinking sort of what the bigger picture would be and hence, okay, do a genetics degree. But then, you know, on the genetics program, while I really loved learning what I learned. I was like, well, I don't really want to do this as a career in the long term. So, okay, let's do something else that I find interesting. And I think the bit that I feel has been key to my career and, and what I've done, and I think is really important to me personally, is like I never I've felt the compulsion just to like stay in something for like a long term if I just don't like it or I just don't want to do it anymore. So, what interests you about law? Because when I think of opposite ends of the spectrum, I think genetics. <laughs> and 
I mean, I'm sure there's something else, but then law, quite different. So it interested you, but to make that jump from having studied genetics to go into law, was that a, a lengthy transition or was it just? Not really. Like, I think, again, it's one of those things at the time, it didn't feel like that vaster jump in in a sense. So my earliest dabblings with sort of legal careers was exploring whether I could use my scientific knowledge in a legal context. So there's a fair number of, of ex-scientists that will go on and specialize in intellectual property or will, I don't know, be lawyers where that industry background and domain expertise in something scientific helps do legal things in that particular area. So that was one sort of line of thinking that occurred to me. But then when it came to the actual learning of law, I actually, I mean, yes, some things are different, but fundamentally it came down to understanding, analyzing complex slightly entangled bits of information, trying to synthesize some kind of conclusion by analyzing it and then, you know, presenting what you think is an answer. And now whether that be complex science data or the complex sort of matrix of a particular case or a set of facts, I think when you break it down to like a fundamental philosophy of knowledge level, actually law, genetics, like, I don't know, I've never felt like it was that actually big a jump in the sense that once you sort of learn to learn, you sort of learn new things and you sort of have a certain process and methodology to learn new subjects without it feeling overwhelming. I feel like that's going to advance into when we talk about entrepreneurship, because learning to learn is very much and learning on the job. One of the key attributes of a good entrepreneur. I'm excited to see where that heads. But after law, right? So you went genetics, you then went law. You then did, I think it was about four or five years of law. Yep. And then went like, not nah, going to do my MBA now. What was the spark for that transition? That transition, I think the spark started about halfway through. I think sort of the novelty of being a solicitor in the city was beginning to wear off. I was kind of just getting more interested in like things related to tech. I'd started dabbling on the side with various little side hustles and projects. And when I finished as a trainee, I took about five months off to go traveling and took that sort of, you know, that, that way, what used to be called qualification leave back then. And just the mixture of travels, realizing that, you know what, like I've learned a lot, but I don't see this as like the thing I will do for the next 10, 15 years. Then just stimulates again, that period of like thinking, okay, what is the next step? What's the bigger picture here? And in terms of an MBA, because I was quite uncertain as to like what exactly that next step would be, the thinking was at the time, well, why don't I do something where I will just be around lots of smart people, learn something new, learn something that I genuinely find very interesting, improve my business skills at the same time, and hopefully be at an institution that I feel is just really stimulating and can really kind of open up new opportunities and doors for me. I think the buzzword, if we are to pick a buzzword, is like pick a program or pick a path that gives you option value. I, I do love the fact, though, that you studied genetics, then did law, and then said, oh, I need to be around smart people. Like, what does that say about your previous <laughs> studies and groups? Just, just joking, of course. But um... Yeah, yeah, no, I, I guess it's like in the world of like, especially law, like people are very much about doing things in a very certain way and things are very structured, very orthodox and nothing particularly moves very fast when it comes to being innovative or thinking creatively sort of outside very specific sort of legal questions. 
And actually, like, find that existence just not particularly fulfilling. Mm. I think other people enjoy that sort of predictability of sort of day-to-day life. And I think, yes, it's very important that there are lots of people who do that. But I think for me personally, that richness and change and, like, being able to learn and understand new and different things has always been very important. Definitely agree with that. So fast forward a little bit. You finish your MBA. You've spent a fortune on it clearly, you know, and all of your studies. And then you become a freelance developer. You taught yourself to code. And in doing that, you were helping other people out, but also testing a few things out. What was your thinking behind that? Because most people who go and get an MBA then go, okay, I'm going to go work for a big firm and make a mint or work for an NGO and help a lot of people out. And not saying what you did was not noble, because obviously entrepreneurship is the most noble of all professions. (laughs) How did you justify doing that after your MBA program? Great question. I started learning during the MBA programs. I mean, even before I I started the program, I was beginning to get like the tech bug and following all these different tech startups and seeing how building a tech product was giving people the opportunity to like literally revolutionize entire industries revolutionize society and you could just see all of that 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 upswing and when i started at a business school like again you know there was a there was a huge hive of activity around oxford at the time lots of new startups entrepreneurship was i think it was a cultural shift that was beginning to happen as well around that time around i'm not just founding something just oh because you know nothing else to do like people were very intentionally like look actually if i want to solve a problem actually building a company might be the best way to do it rather than wanting to go work for a big corporation for the rest of their life so one there was just that hub of activity around entrepreneurship and building things but the thinking at the time for me was if i want to be part of that hub of activity just being an ideas person will only get you so far and if i really want to And if I really want to get stuck in and be able to make the most of this opportunity, I need to sort of learn the basics. And so I, yeah, just started doing some online tutorials. There were some people at university that were kind of, you know, giving me some sort of some support and coaching and feedback. And the more you sort of do and the more you go down that rabbit hole, sort of the better you get. And so by the time I left Oxford in 2014, I wouldn't say I was a brilliant developer, but I was getting to a point where I had enough knowledge where I could get things up and running and sort of help people kind of turn their ideas into sort of basic prototype web applications. Amazing. And you had this experience coding, prototyping, and you went through a few different products, if you will, and iterations of it. We talked a little bit about the business card replacement app, and I know you worked on a few other things. And then you settled on something that you stuck with for a while. So let's talk about that aha moment and then a little bit more about your experience building a company that you ultimately sold to Airbnb. Yeah, you're right. So during that time, this was around like 2014, 2015, I was dabbling in so many different things, was trying to make lots of different things, consult on lots of different things. And I think anyone talking to me at that time would just think, oh, this guy is lost and has no direction and needs to sort his life out and get a proper job. And probably there may have been a kernel of truth in that at the time. But uh, actually, you know, it was just very fun just learning different things, speaking to lots of different people, getting better at executing and getting things up and running. And 
one of the projects of that time was an offshoot of a personal need. So just for some context, I'm a wheelchair user. I have been a wheelchair user since, since I can remember. I was born with a disability called spinal muscular atrophy, and that has meant that I've never been able to walk. And as I mentioned earlier, I took a bit of leave when I was a lawyer to go traveling. And it was my first real experience traveling, to be honest. Like before that, I was always very scared because is my wheelchair going to break? Or am I going to turn up to a hotel and it's not accessible? And even though I had the most fun time ever during 2010, 2011, that five month travel experience, loads of times things just went wrong and you turn up to places and they said they were wheelchair accessible, but they actually wouldn't. They actually weren't. And so fast forward a few years, me and a friend, Martin, had already started a WordPress-powered online magazine around traveling if you have accessibility needs. And through our blogs where we would travel somewhere and write about all the resources that we discovered, we were getting quite a good following and we're realizing that, hey, you know what? It's not just Martin and I that have this problem. There is just a massive dearth of information and resources for disabled people to travel or if an individual is traveling with someone who is disabled. And so that then gave rise to, to a comable. And so in the summer of 2015, I prototyped an application that was effectively Airbnb Expedia, but for accessible travel, where we sourced properties and hotels all around the world that we thought had good accessibility, made sure the information was accurate and stuck it into a web application and threw it out there. And then, yeah, a comable was born. That's amazing. And I've always, always wondered, and I've never asked, where does the name come from? Yeah, so I think some entrepreneurs just have like a fantastic knack for like names and coming up with stuff. Whereas it is definitely not something I can. I always struggle with like, what to name things. I've never felt it's something that I have an intuitive feel for. And so Martin and I were just like, like spent, you know, weeks, months just going around in circles. Like we're about to launch this product. Let's get something up there, right? Where we can get a .com. And so we thought, look, accommodation, we want people to feel like they're able to do what anyone else can do. Like in the sort of disability world, like adding able into something often it's a little bit of a, a syllable you often find in accessibility-related products. So accommodable, sort of accommodation, accessibility, all of these things sort of clutched into like one slightly sort of hybridized word that also had a .com available for it. Oh, and also let's not forget the fact that we had no money at the time and so didn't want to spend more than five bucks on a domain name. Definitely feel you on that one. So tell me then, like, obviously you had a quite an experience building the business up. I would say I was a little bit jealous of all the amazing photos that you were posting from visiting all the different sites as you were adding them to the flow. What was the experience of scaling that business like? The irony is, yes, there was definite time and effort put into sort of curating community. And basically we wanted to give sort of accessible travel, like an aspirational vibe. So yeah, lots of like photos of traveling from nice places. However, the reality, it's painful and building a business is tough as hell. Scaling it is really hard and building teams are hard. like, you know, you are constantly firefighting every day. You are constantly trying to juggle 50 fires at one go and like, you know, working out which fires to let burn, which one of those 50 fires that you barely have enough money to sort out can you fix at any given moment. It's a tough life. 
yeah, I, I can empathize with that. <laughs> Still working on the scaling at our end. But um, ultimately with you, it came good. So talk to me about Airbnb and how that came about and then your time there, if you don't mind. Sure. And like, it's interesting you mentioned like the word scale, because that in itself was one of the big drivers for the eventual acquisition. So when we launched a comma board, we launched it not even knowing whether this was a business and we launched it more on the, okay, can we solve a problem? Let's see what happens. The viral word of mouth was fascinating at the time. However, with that, we were getting a demand that we just struggled to satisfy. For every 10 sort of booking requests that we got, we only had one property to satisfy. So like, we're actually having to turn away nine out of 10 of our users, which is, you know, pretty crazy, right? Like if you're turning away 90% of your customers simply because you can't fill the demand, in some ways you think, oh, that's a great problem to have. It shows that you're you know, validating a need. Yes. Product market fit. Product market fit. Yay. But the flip side is it's actually a really tough problem to solve because finding enough properties to meet that demand is quite a complex scale challenge. To secondly, as websites grow and more people use an application, you're constantly chasing your tail or trying to sort of keep up with sort of the infrastructure requirements. So things were beginning to creak. So combined with sort of lack of supply, infrastructure creaking, like we knew we had to do a big investment round in order to build that travel infrastructure. Originally, we were doing a mini Series A, or maybe it was a Series A. I don't know how our things are lit. <laughs> I know the labeling for all of these things constantly changes. But we were doing a big fundraise, basically. And we'd already done one, an angel fundraise earlier. But in the summer of 2017, we started a big round. One of my investors, when I met him and, and a couple of others, was sort of talking about, well, if you are going to need a lot of investment to build infrastructure to enable scale within travel, well, maybe it's worth having a conversation with companies within travel that already have that infrastructure to see whether, you know, there is a, an opportunity to maybe have one of those companies invest or collaborate. I don't know, a complete sort of open-ended kind of path, really. A strategic investment. <laughs> yeah, that led to a bunch of introductions, sort of, you know, the Expedias, the Booking.coms, and one of those introductions was to Airbnb. And I spoke to some folks there and very quickly we gelled and like aligned on sort of what we were trying to do. And actually reasonably quickly, the conversation moved from like, look, Shrin, this is not something we would invest in. However, we at Airbnb need to do accessibility better. It's something we know we're looking for the skill sets. We can do this better and clearly like you and your team at Accommable are like the world leaders in this. Would you be open to changing the conversation into an acquisition and have you and the team join Airbnb and build out what you're doing within Airbnb. The funny thing is we started it all off at more about a fundraise, but it ended up being more about acquisitions. It was, a, it was an evolutionary process rather than, hey, we're going to decide to find a buyer and that's just that. Wow. And were the board supportive of that? I mean, clearly it went through, but how did the conversation with the board happen about, hey, actually, we're not going to raise, we want to sell the business? Yeah. And again, this was just one of those things where you just have to sort of bring people on side. So as those conversations were beginning to evolve from investment discussions to acquisitions discussions, there came a moment where, okay, it's time now to speak to all the various stakeholders. I've got to 
speak to the investors, I've got to speak to a team member and like start to get all the different pieces of the puzzle in shape. And also, again, very early on in those conversations, it was raised where if, if, if the acquisition did happen, I would have to move out to America. And like hey, at the time, that was you know, very much what I wanted to do anyway. And to be sort of at the heart of the company and be able to build out what we were doing. I guess you just start that process of getting people on side. It's a challenge in every stakeholder in the puzzle. You've got to find a deal that works for everybody. And there's many months of back and forth and many months of trying to, to stitch a deal together that worked for everyone. It sounds like that's where the genetics training came in. Like, how do we splice this thing together? That's a really good analogy, actually. <laughs> but it was, yeah, trying to splice it all together is definitely not easy, right? Because when you have an acquisition go through, like, again, it's not just your team and investors. It's also, are you doing the right thing for, like, your users and the community you're building for? And you get this work for yourself. And I was moving over to America. And there's so many different stakeholders that you just have to bring together. It was tough sometimes. And I guess the legal training probably kicked in as well in those negotiations. Yeah, the legal training definitely helped when you see a term sheet or an SPA and all of these big thickets of documentation come through. It definitely helps that... This is documentation that you are vaguely familiar with, albeit, you know, it was many years since I was out of out, uh, since I had left practice. But what the legal training doesn't train you for is like the emotional connection you have to it. Being a lawyer as an advisor and like as a professional advisor is very different to reviewing a legal document when it concerns something that you've put like your blood, sweat and tears into. You are just so emotionally entangled to what you're doing. It means, you know, you sometimes look at terms and look at things in a, in a different way compared to just being a, a detached lawyer. No, I definitely feel you on that. You know, I can only imagine what that was like. Talk to me a little bit, though, before we go into angel investing, just on your time at Airbnb. The acquisition went through and then you became head of accessibility and you got to live in San Francisco. Was it everything you thought it was going to be working for one of the fastest scaling, most well-respected tech companies in the US? In hindsight, it was a mixed bag. So, you know, as you said, I, the role I took over there was to lead accessibility within the homes business and sort of build out a new team, sort of a new product and operations team related to accessibility within that homes business. I think on the good side, we were able to make some really cool changes to the product and those changes have impact just by virtue of the scale that airbnb is the reason i say mixed was trying to get things done and get those changes and trying to move things forward i probably underestimated how challenging it can sometimes be to get things done within a large organization and, and i genuinely don't mean that in like a disparaging to a particular company way I, I mean that in the sense that when you just have a large organization with lots of stakeholders it is not like a startup where you can just decide things one day and then like build it the next day and then ship it the following day. When you have a company that has a reputation, millions or hundreds of millions of users, everything has a process and hierarchy and structure and you have stakeholders and other teams to get alignment on. And it does take time. And I think I probably underestimated the complexity of being able to make things happen when you do just happen to have so many more 
stakeholders and entities and just organizational complexity to navigate. It meant that while I think I was able to do some things there, I wasn't able to do all the things that I wanted. But then having said that, I think the things that we were able to do because of the scale of Airbnb had much more impact compared to what we could have done at Accommable. It's an interesting way of looking at it. Like you obviously had huge plans for Accommable, but the magnitude of what you could achieve, just having that network to tap into at Airbnb meant that your total impact was far beyond what you did at Accountable, even if it was only just addressing one of those issues. Exactly. And I think at the time, like it was like quite frustrating. It's been a while now. And like you look back on it, it's like, look, actually being able to do a handful of things at scale was definitely much more than what we could have achieved doing lots of little things, even lots of big things, but at a small company. That's it's good to keep in mind. Good, good retrospective on it. So you had your earnout period, you spent your time at Airbnb, and then you turned your attention more to the advising and investing side. What led to that switch? Was there a plan behind that one? Or was that still kind of free flowing, see what you know, get into what you're interested in? I think you're beginning to understand my personality now. Naturally, there was <laughs> no plan. As you said, you know, I was leaving Airbnb. Also, I was coming back to the UK. So so I'd, I'd been in, in the US for just over two years, but I was wanting to come back home for a mixture of like family and personal reasons. And I, you know, I was wanting to come back to London anyway. And so I moved over back sort of just actually like ironically, not too long before the pandemic and in early 2020. Around that time, I'd already started informally kind of helping out, sort of advising, mentoring startups at a mixture of like sort of incubator accelerator programs. Probably the one I'd spent the time with most in the preceding sort of months and years was was the Oxford University Foundry, because of the alumni connection. Again, it all just started very organically. So I, I was advising, mentoring other founders, trying to share experience, my time as, as a founder, and also I think just like trying to sort of pass on what I'd learned, but also kind of the mistakes I'd made and sort of the scars I had on my back, and also trying to sort of showcase share what i wish i had done then if i knew what i what i did now basically having sort of gone through the whole cycle so a lot of informal advisory mentoring roles a couple of those i was like just yeah sure i'll chip in a small amount of cash just you know a few k checks just because there's a round happening it was just a way for me to get to know what investing was about at the same time these were some of these four founders i really believed in loved their visions loved what they were doing and it all just kind of organically emerged from just doing a few little checks here and there a bit of mentoring and then you know the pandemic hit and it's sort of like okay what next i'd really enjoyed doing bits of angel investing so far on a very informal basis and actually like when the pandemic sort of hit and sort of yes it was horrible and like you know just really sad what was happening but equally like you could see that this is a starting point of probably a an epoch defining transition potentially and actually this is when a lot of new companies are going to get created and actually i'd rather be you know if this is going to happen let, let, let's be there at the beginning so what started off as very sort of organic mentoring, advising, throwing the odd bit of cash here and there in a very opportunistic manner went more into like, oh, actually, I want to do a few more deals. And these are the areas I'm interested in. And okay, how do I go about doing this well? No, I mean, it sounds like all the right 
reasons to do it. And clearly you had experience from being an entrepreneur and also working in a big scale-up business that shaped how you are as an angel. What would you say is the defining attribute that you want to bring to your angel investing? What are the most important things to you there? So the bit that was probably helping me then and probably is to this day was very much sort of being like pitching myself as like the operator angel. I think unlike Silicon Valley, there aren't as many founder operator turned angels. And so coming back into the UK ecosystem and being someone who's kind of like gone through sort of the entrepreneurial life cycle was often a really strong card that I could play in terms of, you know, especially on sort of justifying being able to get some allocation on hyper-competitive deals. Quite often, you know, I was one of the few founders or the only ex-founder operator on that deal. And that is something, you know, I do with a lot of the founders I work with. Like I try to sort of support the problem challenge that you are facing this moment in time. This is what I did four years ago. This is what I feel I could have done better. And this is where I think, you know, you have the opportunity. And being able to be an investor with that hands-on experience has been really invaluable for me. You mentioned it before, but you get into these competitive deals because you've got that edge with the experience. But how are you sourcing your deal flow? So clearly you're connected to a few networks. I'd say that the bulk it is all network-driven. A whole bunch of deals come through all the various well-known incubators, accelerators, and you know, knowing the people that, 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 that work there and sort of the demo days, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of deals that have been shared with me from various VC funds in London that, that you know, that I, that I regard really highly and some of the, the investors there I, I regard really highly and also from other angels. So they, it's like, again, a whole bunch of angels in London I've got to know who ping things my way. And finally, other founders as well. A lot of times the founders I have invested in actually then often become a driver of deal flow. Like those founders get to know other great founders and those individuals will be like, hey, you know, can you introduce me to some of your investors? And the founders that I've invested in will be like, hey, Shreen, look, here's a good founder that I, that I know. Why don't you take a look at what they're doing? Network is clearly important. And obviously, if you've identified one good founder, they should have an idea of who else is similar to them in yeah. terms of drive and ambition. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, in this world, like forgets like, right, like driven, ambitious, hardworking people. I don't think it's any coincidence that they will usually get on really well with equally like, you know, like-minded, driven, hardworking, smart, ambitious individuals. I agree with that, definitely. Beyond that, though, what else are you looking for in the deal flow? And how has it been influenced by your time as an entrepreneur? It's a mixture of things. I'm your classic sort of pre-seed seed investor in the sense that I'm not very particular about seeing business plans or five-year projections or like big, you know, big picture stuff. I think what I care more about, it's, it's the people, it's the team. Can they get things up and running? Like, what are some of the early hypotheses they're testing? Do I think this team can work well together? Am I getting the right signals that they're going to be able to work through hard times and deal with all the bumps and the roller coaster that building a business is? And so you're looking for like lots of fuzzy signals as to what the founders are doing now. I'm curious about what the bigger picture is, but I see it more as like a test of creativity and imagination rather than something that you would hold somebody to. 
Okay. I mean, I find that interesting, obviously, because the decision that you made to sell to Airbnb was definitely about that bigger picture and having more impact. But the fact that you less focused on it earlier on, it, I won't say it surprises me, but I just... I think it just comes down to that no one, as much as they say they can, can predict the future. It's why I say you're looking for evidence of creativity to come up with a vision rather than like the vision being something that someone's definitely going to do and you and you will hold them to it. And, you know, very much open to the fact that when you invest in something now, given the stage that I uh, that I write my checks, hmm. there is a very good chance that there'll be a major pivot or something will change. And actually, the vision may evolve into something quite different. Yeah. I want to talk about one particular instance, if you don't mind for a minute, because mm-hmm. I know you had a, a group of angels early on. And let's just say some of them were very valuable. Some of them left a little bit to be desired. Some challenges. <laughs> yeah. There were some challenges. Yeah. If you don't mind talking us through that situation and kind of what you've learned from that, I, I would love to hear how you reflect on it. In hindsight, they felt bigger than what they are now. But when the, when the deal came through, yes, there were some tensions on the investor side with regards to the terms on the deal and whether to accept or not. And what was the right time to accept and what more to negotiate or what the figure and goal was with all of this. And yes, yeah, some of those resulted in, in disagreements. And Sometimes they got quite heated, but I think in hindsight, the retrospect of all of that, and I tell a lot of the founders, is just making sure that when you are raising money, especially in those super early days, those initial investors, you've got to just look beyond the check. You're looking for people effectively to be your sort of business partners are a strong word because your investor isn't going to be in the business, but it's so important that your earliest investors are people that share your wider vision of what you want to do. And, you know, they're aligned on sort of what you're trying to build and they care about the problem you're trying to solve. And again, and that slightly contradicts what I said earlier about sort of the vision is not everything, but I think you can actually go at a more fundamental level. So even if your product vision might change, I still think certain things about what you want to do and like your ways of working and the kind of impact you want to have generally are sort of immutable usually on the course of of building a business. And I think it's so important. The way the word I'm looking for is values, right? Like it's really important that those early stage investors have shared values. Yeah. I know later on that just becomes harder just through sheer numbers and the need to raise a certain amount of money. But I think in the earliest days when you do just have that more control and you are like dealing with individual people and relatively small numbers, I just cannot understate the importance of making sure that you bring people on that share those aims and values. I think that's absolutely right. You've obviously got a few investments under your belt now. What have you learned from those investments about yourself, one, and about angel investing? And have you made any adjustments to how you look at deal flow because of those first angel investments you made? Yeah, I think my methodology has evolved as you just see more and get a bit better at it. Well, actually, I don't know if I've got better at it. (laughs) But as as I've just done more, yes, there has been some refinement. I think at the beginning, I felt like, okay, I should just stick to what I know, i.e. these are the the professions I've been a part of. These are some of the things I've done, so therefore I will only do them. But actually, I found myself very quickly not wanting to do that. Consumer travel marketplaces or something, legal tech or whatever. Like When you come to the conclusion that you are in the business of backing great people, I'm sort of less concerned now about what someone's industry is. So I'd say I'm very just agnostic as to the industry of of what I invest in compared to sort of at the very beginning. Yes, there are some domains I just have a more natural understanding of and 
if someone pitches something to me in an area I understand, I can probably make a decision faster and I can evaluate it quicker. Whereas with others, I just have to do a little bit of homework to get my head around it. The approach I take in probably the last year or so is that, yeah, it's very much about people, teams, and so, you know, being able to validate early stage hypothesis and what industries that in, I, I am less fast. So that's probably been the biggest change and the biggest sort of evolution of, of my investment process since. Taking that all into account, like if you were just starting off angel investing again, what would you have done differently? Like what advice would you give to yourself? Good question. So I think the timeline of angel investing is several years. And I think I haven't quite got to that point yet where I'm able to evaluate, have I done good? Have I done bad in order to close that feedback loop and say, you know, I should have done this or that. At the moment, I genuinely think I took an approach of start small, do little checks, get to know people, don't do too much too early, pace yourself, trade on the edges you have, i.e. operator experience, domain expertise. So like, at the moment, I don't know if I would have done anything differently. However, ask me this question in two, three years time and maybe things haven't gone so well, I'd be like, ah, do you know what? I should have done this. Ah, I should have done that. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to. I'm going to put it in my calendar <laughs> in two years time. It's a good way of looking at it, constantly reassessing your portfolio and your methodology for investing and why you're investing is definitely people should keep in mind at the start because it's not just about getting money out there. It's understanding why you're putting it into things. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting you talk about the why. Some investors are very much, I'm doing this to make money. And naturally, I would like to make money, but I genuinely do a lot of investing because for me, it's actually really good fun and really motivating to be able to help the next generation of businesses. And a lot of the businesses are trying to solve real complex problems. There's actually quite a lot of like intrinsic motivation for me seeing investing as a vehicle to solve problems. Well, it's funny you bring that up because I was hoping we could talk about motivations and also your advocacy work a bit more. Because I know you've got a big focus on trying to find roles in VC for individuals from underrepresented backgrounds. Take us through that a little bit more. Yeah, so one of the roles I have is on the advisory board of Included VC. So Included VC is an initiative where folks from underrepresented backgrounds receive a training program in VC and given sort of VC 101 and a really enriched training program and experience to equip those individuals with the VC skills and then support and network guidance, hopefully then landing a job. And it's the kind of thing that I really do enjoy being a part of. I think when it comes to seclusion, diversity, my preference is always to work on projects or programs that help upskill people and often where they haven't had access to those in the first place. So uh, the things that I do, I try to be really targeted and where I think there's going to be high impact. I've seen some of the stuff that you've invested in. So we obviously have Oxwash in our portfolio as well as yourself. You talked about not having a pattern in how you've made your jumps around from genetics and such to entrepreneurship and investor. But with your investing, you definitely do seem to have this pattern of investing things that are both technologically innovative, but also have a greater good. I presume that's something that you're going to keep doing in the future. Do you think that there is a trade-off between doing good and making money? And if not, how do you as an angel ensure there's a balance between the two? not wanting to get overly philosophical whether there's a trade-off also just depends on a number of things as well in the sense that 
what do you define as doing good? Is doing good simply, you know, there is a particular social problem outcome as defined elsewhere and you back a company that is trying to solve it or actually is doing good in the sense that this is a high growth company that can create lots of employment. It's enabling a greater efficiency and generation of value in a particular industry. And that then has knock on positive consequences. So not wanting to get overly philosophical, but I think whether there are trade-offs also depends on definition of what you think impact in business is. I am probably slightly more on the open-ended side of it. Like I think doing good can come in so many different forms, whether it be you're building something that may be sort of, I don't know, like a B2B SaaS product and somewhat neutral in like directly speaking, but is creating like really positive, good jobs. Maybe there's underrepresented people within the team or within, but I just think there's such an open-ended question as to what doing good and having impact can be. Hence, I don't think there needs to be a trade-off. It's a tricky question just purely because I think there's so much subjectivity around it. No, that's a fair point. What is doing good? <laughs> yeah. I've got a few easier questions for you. You'll be thankful. I always ask everyone, what's the best book that you've read recently from any genre? More for my own benefit than probably most of the listeners, but I'd love to know what, what you've been reading lately. Mm, lots and lots of random things. I think probably the last book I found actually interesting and like, oh, I quite gripping. It was a few months ago and it's a slightly obscure. It was a book called Who is Michael Ovitz? And it's the guy who the one of the, the co-founders of the creative artist agency in Hollywood and talks of his entire life story, autobiography around playing a major role in building what we now call the Hollywood film industry. And I thought there's some fascinating parallels around what he did within the film business as to what you sometimes see within VC, where you build networks and where sort of CAA built networks around like producers, writers, and musicians and directors, you see some of the best VCs and investors build networks around the best talent, the best founders, the best other investors. And it really just hit home how much a lot of success is interposing yourself within those network hubs and being able to bring groups of people and skill sets together and leveraging. And I think that was one of the things that, and reading how Michael Ovitz did that within the film industry, aside from the flawed aspects that Michael Ovitz is very sort of open about, but it was also just very fascinating to read his path and journey and in, in doing that within the film industry been adding it to my basket on popular website <laughs> so i will be reading that one if you enjoy trying to piece together knowledge from things that maybe on face value don't seem connected but when you drill down there's just some really valuable knowledge learning that can be applied elsewhere definitely you've got to look at everything in that light like okay what can i take away from this even if it's completely a different geography demographic industry etc yeah so one serious question then, and then uh, I'll let you go. So fast forward 10, 20 years, you decide to look back on all you've done. What would you like your legacy to be? We've talked about investing in things that do good and being a part of bigger picture. But if you had to say, I want my legacy to be this one thing, what would that be? 
I think one thing in 10, 20 years time is a good chance I'll be looking back on it, having done an extra two or three careers in complete different tangents. <laughs> I think if, if, if the existing patterns anything to go by. An astronaut, maybe? Yeah, nothing related to whatever I'm doing now. <laughs> but I feel like the legacy should be, or hopefully is, I contributed, invested, or whatever that contribution is, sort of blood, sweat, tears, time, money, who knows. That legacy is being able to have contributions Contributed to like projects, companies, organizations, initiatives. And I, I purposely am very open about what the entity is. But like, you contribute to things that create value, make people's lives better, have improved something, hopefully have generated value again in, in the broadest sense of terms for, for, for all of those involved. And that you've sort of done something useful, right? When it comes down to it all. Um, like you want to be able to say in 20 years, I worked with X, Y, and Z, I contributed this, and it was just really useful for somebody. And I keep that purposely open because, again, I think these sorts of things come in so many different forms. I, I can't argue with any any of that. So I, I guess the last thing is you're obviously working on something quite exciting at present. Any... Uh... Any hints at what that might be that you want to share with us? Oh, totally. Luke, who was the CTO at Accommable, we teamed up together. At the moment, we're sort of playing around with ideas. Um, at the moment, we're doing a big sort of deep dive into GPT-3, which is a language generator by OpenAI, partly because it's an industry we have experience with. We are currently exploring some ideas using GPT-3 and travel and content generation within the travel sector. It's still very much at the idea stage. And by the time this podcast is out or whenever we speak again, it may be something very different. But effectively, we are prototyping a whole bunch of ideas and areas we find interesting and seeing where they go. A little bit like what we did back in 2014, 2015. <laughs> Things come full circle, right? Yeah, it was a simpler life back then. <laughs> but um, Simpler, yeah. It's, it's absolutely been fantastic having you on the show and learning about your journey and more importantly, angel investing, of course. But just to say, hey, I, I knew him before all that <laughs> is an honor for me. So it's been a pleasure. I, I do hope you have a wonderful next journey, wherever that may go with the company that you're building. And in maybe 12 months time, or 36 months time we can come back to lessons learned as an angel and reflecting on this episode here now so Shrin, thank you very much well, thanks so much tom well we hope you enjoyed that episode of angel insights and for more news about syndicate room follow us on twitter at syndicate room or myself at tom Britton. and we do as always hope you'll join us for the next episode of angel insights in a few weeks time until then bye